1: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham.
2: Looks like we got ourselves some more data. It's episode 409 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and season two of Upload is back. On Prime Video, going to be talking to Andy Allo about what's going on with Nora. We'll talk about the Nora Nathan relationship a little bit. Also going to be talking to Greg Daniels, who's the creator of the series. And that's where you're going to get really into the depths of what the show in this season of Upload is about now streaming on Prime Video. Also going to be talking to Cherish Chen, who's the writer of Radiant Red. And yes, that is part of the massive version. Heard me talk to Ryan Parrott last week. We'll talk about this other Radiant Black spinoff as well, which is a character that you're already familiar with if you're familiar with the comic, and that first issue is now available from Image Comics. Oh, and there's the review that you've been waiting for. My review of the Batman is going to be happening this week. Also going to talk about Disney and Pixar's Turning Red and all those great trailers that dropped this week as well. But you know, I'm going to start things off talking about Upload, and we'll start off with Andy Allo next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
3: Hi, this is Clarissa Thiebaud from Marvel's Runaways, and you're listening to the Down and Dirty
2: podcast. There's plenty going on in the afterlife and real life in season two of Upload, which is now streaming on Prime Video. And I was so excited to get a chance to talk to one of the series stars, Andy Allo, who plays Nora, and of course the series creator, Greg Daniels, about this upcoming season. Let's start with Andy Allo and find out what's going on with Nora this season. Andy, how you doing?
4: Hey, James, I'm doing good. How are you?
2: Really, really good. So excited for Upload to come back. Season two, of course, coming back on Prime Video on March the 11th. But, Andy, I want to go back to season one for a second because it was okay. i was just so much fun watching Nora and Nathan together. What was your favorite thing about that relationship and how it evolved over the course of the season?
4: I really loved how, you know, initially Nora really judges Nathan and is just like, ugh, who is this guy who's so self-obsessed? <laughs> always looking at himself in the mirror and how she gives him a chance, you know, to really get to know him, get to see, you know, well, who is he now not based on who he has been and that journey of, of her getting out of her judgments, getting out of jumping to conclusions, even though how it ends, (laughs) she really allows herself to go (laughs) to go all in and then gets ghosted. You know, we can all relate.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, no doubt
4: what a cliffhanger but i think what that that's the biggest takeaway for me one of them is is her ability that you know despite her initial judgments she did give him a chance to get to know him as as he was in that moment
2: absolutely how does she feel in heading into the season given everything that's happened i mean obviously she's not probably defined by that relationship but it still has to have a pretty big effect on her so where do you think we find her heading into this season
4: well what's cool is season two picks up right where season one left off And so it's an immediate jump cut to her landing in in the Lud camp. And, you know, it's tough. They they never really had a chance. You know, it was this thing of they were just getting going until it was just like, that's it. (laughs) So they never took off. So I think there's this feeling of not really having closure, but still kind of having feelings, but wanting to move on. And so in season two, you know, Nora does have a love interest that she meets who is alive. That's, always, that's
2: always a key piece to the whole puzzle right, right. there. You know, being alive yeah. is kind of an important part.
4: <laughs> yeah, Robbie, Robbie hates it when I say that. He's just like, "Oh, what shade? And I'm like, well, you know. <laughs>
2: Talk about an unfair advantage, right? I mean. <laughs>
4: yes, yeah. So it, it, we'll see how that translates and, and affects their relationship because I think there's still fle- feelings there that were unresolved. And season two is definitely a journey.
2: So how much can you actually tell us, of course, without spoiling anything, about the LUDs? And do you feel like maybe because she's hurt, maybe because of everything that happened with Nathan, does that make her kind of more susceptible to want to be a part of a group like this and what they're doing?
4: What's interesting is initially, similar to season one, you know, there's those judgments. You know, Nora is a bit skeptical because she does come from a very tech background, but she's always existed in between worlds. She's lived, you know. IRL but then she's in the VR world like okay she knows how to see the beauty in tech but also like okay I really appreciate you know being with my dad and being able to you know when her and Nathan touch hands for the first time and it's like whoa oh my god like I can feel you so she knows the value also in that being able to be with someone and in in a physical touch where it's like oh I can feel you human to human and in the flesh so with season two, I think it's a bit of that shock, you know, going into the LUDs, at anti-tech, there's no technology there. And she literally has to get, she gets her hands dirty, you know, she's, <laughs> they're making their own food, they're doing all the, everything is organic and natural, but there's all these different dynamics, even within the LUDs. And she's, she has to learn how to navigate those people, you know, there's, there's extremes in every group. And I think that's something I really appreciate about Greg and the writers and and just in the world that they have built is you really get to see all the different sides of something. As much as you, you know, talking about death and the afterlife, you're going to see all the sides of it, talking about tech, and then even within the anti-tech world. You get to see the extremes, maybe the people who are kinda in the middle, the people who are like, Yeah, you know, all right, I'm anti, but maybe not that hardcore. And Nora really explores all of that and it informs a lot of the decisions she makes throughout the season. Gosh, that is so
2: well put. That is so true. And you guys will see that when you when you watch the season. That is very, very well put. So we see at the end of last season okay. again, Ingrid's back in the picture. We huh? don't know how much of how permanent that is or anything like that, <laughs> but now let's let's you know play hypothetically here. How do you think that Nora would react to seeing Ingrid in Lakeview?
4: Oh my gosh! I mean, why can't she just go away? You right? Know? I mean,
2: come on. <laughs> From the fans' lips to your ears, that's exactly what it is.
4: <laughs> yeah, it, at the end of the scene, as if it wasn't a, a big enough blow, you know, to not hear "I love you back." That she's there again. And now permanently, oh my gosh, that's heartbreaking. You know, I think even even with her trying to move on, you know, to see something like that, it's just that extra like salt on a wound. Yeah, that that would be tough. But yeah, we'll we'll see what happens with with Ingrid. And (laughs) what's funny is Allegra, who plays Ingrid, is literally the nicest person on earth. She's so sweet and kind and funny. And I think, well, that's the only kind of person that can play Ingrid, you know, because, you know, then she plays Ingrid with such heart. And even if you're like, oh, go away, you still kind of feel for her, (laughs) which I think is incredible.
2: That is the frustrating truth of this show. I will say that you're definitely right about that. Now, I know a lot of fans are obviously rooting for Nathan and Nora to somehow find their way back to one another. They had such a strong bond, but it also makes things hurt even more because of what happened at the end of last season. So, I mean, really, ultimately, do you think that that's something that they can recover from? Should they end up finding their way back to one another?
4: I think Nathan's going to have to really work hard to win Nora back because I oh, don't know. That was rough. That was rough to, to not get the response you want to hear. <laughs> and, but he has a good reason. I know he ran out of data, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> I I do have hope for them it's going to take some work. You know, I think there's that journey in season two. They're very much distant from each other. And with Nora being in a, in a new relationship, when she starts dating someone from the LUDs, that's a complication. So they, they're not, <laughs> there's not a lack of obstacles for them. Clearly they, they, they came they overcame the he's dead and she's alive thing. But now there's just a whole other set of complications now. So we'll see if love will prevail or or if they, you know, find a way to just be friends.
2: Andy Allo, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much. Yeah, and honestly, if you thought season one cliffhanger was bad and, and, and it hit you, just wait. Season two is even even worse. <laughs> Which she says with an evil cackle. <laughs>
2: wow. And as if that doesn't make you want to jump and go stream season two of Upload right now on Prime Video, I've given even more info from series creator Greg Daniels, right now for you. Greg, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing really good, man. I know that fans are still buzzing about Nathan and Nora after how it happened at the end of last season. So kind of give us a spoiler-free check where we find them at the beginning of this season.
1: Well, this season starts off like rolling continuously from last year. It's about two hours later, you know, and so they're they're headed in different directions because Nora is going into the woods to get off the grid with the LUDs, the protest movement. And Nathan is basically frozen in two gig and will be revived by uh, Ingrid, who has uploaded to be with him, which, of course, puts a lot of pressure on that relationship and there's a lot of guilt involved for him. And so when we start the season, they're really really headed in opposite directions and they can't communicate because Nora is only in the real world with the the anti-tech LUDs. And Nathan is only in the virtual world. We'll see if they can find their way back to each other.
2: You know, it's really interesting with Nora going off the grid. Do you feel like that kind of helped you open up the world a little bit, maybe expand the story outside of Lakeview a little bit more?
1: Yeah, very much. That's very perceptive. Yeah, I think we we had mentioned the LUDs, and they were kind of like this interesting off-camera presence that had been referred to mysteriously in the, in the first season. And it seemed like uh, that would be a cool... Thing to explore, you know, the people who are the only ones who are willing to forego all technology in protest uh, of this whole situation, you know, and then and then there's like a lot of different currents inside that movement. There are people who are against upload on religious reasons, and then there's other people who are more sort of left left wing, and they're all about fairness and like they should only be an upload if everybody can go and. You know, so then it, and it should be supported by the, the the government and you know, like universal healthcare kind of deal. So there's different strands in that movement. It seemed like an interesting place to 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 park Nora for a while as she tries to figure out what her own opinion is to to what should happen because she was very enthusiastic about upload in the beginning of the show, but she's also aware that so many people can't afford it and and what's the proper way for a digital afterlife to you know roll out is a big question
2: so you mentioned ingrid and having her in lakeview has to be a real shake up for the story especially for nathan so what's going to be like having her there and could we be in store for a couple of surprises as well oh yeah I,
1: <laughs> well it sounds like you've seen it uh, there are a bunch of surprises i don't want to spoil anything yeah i mean the thing that's so fun about ingrid is she is a person who is just going after this one goal that she set for herself a while ago—to be with Nathan and to have it all work out—and and he's like the the perfect sort of boyfriend on her arm that she can possibly envision. Whether he's that into it or not is a, is a little bit of less concern to her, and she's willing to do a, 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 some kind of sketchy things to get there. So you know, she's kind of like a fun character to to write because. Uh, She's got such a strong narcissism as her, as her motivation. And the actress, Allegra, is, is hilarious. So there, there's a, we, we really put her through her paces this season. There's a lot of stuff that happens to her up in Lakeview.
2: Greg, I feel like there's a lot of fun characters right on this show, but Luke and Nathan together, those scenes have to be really, really fun. So talk about that dynamic a little bit. And could we see their relationship evolve a little bit more this season?
1: Yeah. Well, they're they're two pals, and they're like they're they're not quite that complicated men who enjoy hanging out with each other and have been stuck in almost like an old age home and because most other people who are dead and uploaded are not cool. So the, they really find each other and are super excited to to kind of bro out at times. And one of the things that that happens this this season is that nathan uses this uh, this pen knife that nora gave him that allows him to adjust the code to kind of create a little a little clubhouse for him and luke to hang in where they are can be undisturbed out of an old feature of the of the vir- virtual world that was shut down but he kind of opens it up again for him and luke to to live in when they need to
2: as you open up the world more this season i realized that last season we didn't get to learn a whole lot about horizon could we learn more about them this season and what goes on behind the scenes there.
1: For sure. And and actually some of the best, I think comedic premises are, are when horizon rolls out new products to get more money out of the uploads. And so like, This season, they come up with these designer digital babies that are kind of like these Tamagotchis that the uploads are willing to spend a lot of money on for little gadgets and to have a cute little digital baby. The initial version is not that cute and you you have to sort of pay for upgrades and it doesn't really roll out the way most people think it will.
2: So, Greg, before I let you go, what's your favorite thing about this second season? And is it true that you're already starting to write season three?
1: Well, we definitely we don't have a a firm order or anything for season three, but I have a lot of optimism, and I and the writers and I are working on a bunch of stories and and it very much. And I guess my favorite thing about this season uh, is just being back in that world. You know, It, it it was a very fun world to be in. It's very imaginative because both halves are complete fictions. You know, the the world of 2034 America is set in the future with self-driving cars and drones and advertising and everything. That's completely imagined. And then the, the digital world where the Horizon company has built this Adirondack style digital hotel with all these kind of features that are sort of magical if you live there that's also completely imagined so just the fun of being back in this imaginary world where you can't really visit it unless you're watching the show or, or doing the show was was the the chief pleasure for me
2: and now we get to enter that world with you as well season two of upload now streaming on prime video greg daniels thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today i appreciate it oh my pleasure yeah thanks for having me and if you loved season one of upload season two really does take things to another level and it's it's i think it's more funny than season one i think there's a lot more deep character moments as well and the way things that really twist and turn for some of these characters that you already love i think you're going to love them even more after you watch season two of upload on prime video that's going to do it for my little chat with andy Allo and greg daniels from upload talking about season two up next my spoiler filled review of the Batman is coming at you on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, That's not just any egg cream. That's a Lemke's special, and all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
4: This is the story of Harry
1: Dallowitz, and how he rose from nothing to become New York's king of the egg cream.
0: So, if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy podcast.
2: Vengeance has come to Gotham City, and the wait for the Batman is finally over. I wanted to give a spoiler-filled review of the Batman, and I'm not going to go through the entire movie and you know spoil major plot points and things like that, but there's definitely going to be some spoilers in here, so just be aware of that if you haven't seen it yet. But I got to say, this is the detective story that I've been waiting for from a Batman movie for, I feel like, a long time long time where you're actually going out trying to solve the case not necessarily for who who did it but the elements of the case itself and I thought that that was one of the more interesting things about what Matt Reeves and company did here it's like okay so you know it's the Riddler you know this from the get-go but who's involved in all this and like who's the rat and all of these other things and and how much is Penguin involved and then you get Carmine Falcone involved and and Sal Moroni's mentioned, but not necessarily seen a, a whole lot out of it outside of like little bits and pieces. But and, you know, how corrupt is the GCPD sort of thing? And those are the elements that you try to get. And it's not just because of the riddles. It's just a part of the entire investigation as a whole, which is which was just a really, really cool element of the story to me to finally focus on the detective aspect of Batman. And I know we've seen that. And other movies in the past, but it was so much a part of this movie. And again, reminding us that this is year two Batman and that he's fallible and that not everybody is on board with him. And even the citizens to a certain degree are still scared of him. And I really like that that was highlighted very subtly too. It wasn't really thrown in there a ton, very, very subtly referenced. So that that was another brilliant job and not a whole lot of time really focused on that. But still, I thought that they made a really, really big impact with that as well. And I also love that because of that, there wasn't a lot of bat tech. Okay. You still have the grappling hooks and things like that. There weren't a ton of batterings, and the ones that he did have weren't very high tech either. A lot of what he did was very, very low tech and practical he, he, down to the Batmobile. I mean, he spent most of the freaking movie on a motorcycle and then we get to see the Batmobile and boy, did they prop the Batmobile up in this movie? You gave the Batmobile maybe the biggest Batmobile moment ever, right? As far as an introduction to the Batmobile, that one was that was a boss introduction, quite frankly to the Batmobile and again not super high tech there were some high tech things in there I'm not saying there was nothing like you know the contact lenses and things like that so there were some things but again he's in the very beginning stages of being Batman you can't expect him to have this super advanced bat tech right away and then you even see how much of a key role that Alfred plays and like decoding the ciphers and things like that but their relationship is still very very raw as well and you get to see, you know, a little bit of tension there. And I thought that the chemistry between Robert Pattinson and Andy Circus really, really worked out well. And it was that kind of animosity at the beginning that really, really led to that big character moment in the hospital later on between the two of them. And I felt like really solidified that relationship and made it matter so, so much. And I've seen the criticism of, well, you know, we're seeing a lot of Batman in this movie, and not a whole lot of Bruce Wayne. And my response to that is, what's wrong with that? Not just because you know you get to see him in the suit more, but because honestly, the whole billionaire playboy thing wouldn't have worked in this movie at all. It wouldn't have fit the it wouldn't have fit the mood. It wouldn't have fit what they were trying to go for. Plus, that's not where the focus was. Now, of course, the Riddler was focused on Bruce Wayne as one of his potential victims, and they sort of take the whole Wayne family down a very, very interesting path, a more interesting path than I think we've seen in other movies prior to this. But the focus wasn't on the Wayne family. The focus was on what was going on in Gotham City. And that's the bottom line, too. Gotham City. You hear so often, and I've said this a billion times, too, that the the city is a character unto itself. And Gotham City, chief among that. But this one, this particular movie... I thought really understood Gotham City and presented it in the correct way with the corruption, with the street level crime, with just how deep things run and how hard it is for anybody to pull themselves up in this city and succeed and survive too, quite frankly. And you get to see, you know, the the mayoral race and things like that and how that plays out and how just somebody, anybody wants to try and bring hope to Gotham and who's that gonna be, and then Batman is not seen as that hopeful symbol right away, and it isn't until the very, very end of the movie that we get that, that he is a sign of hope. When he cuts that cord and falls into that water, and everybody's looking at him like, what the hell is he doing? And he goes over there and starts helping survivors, and you see the whole tone change as far as how people feel about Batman. And even though he might not have wanted to be a symbol of hope, now he realizes that maybe that's his motivation for being Batman instead of what happened to his father. Again, a tonal shift that we don't normally see in Batman movies. And there were a ton of moments like that in the Batman, quite frankly. This wasn't a movie that was focused a ton on kicking and punching. And I thought that was interesting too. Like, there's plenty of great action sequences. As a matter of fact, another unforgettable hallway scene in the superhero project, and I don't know what it is about hallways and superheroes, but that muzzle flash scene that they did was absolutely incredible. And I find that they did that practically, which is insane to me. That That just makes it even more impressive. But I realized a few days after watching the movie that this might be the first time in any Batman live action movie, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that batman doesn't lay a finger on the main villain of the movie we don't see him land a single punch on the riddler am i right please correct me if i'm wrong on that If from remembering it incorrectly they apprehend the riddler without batman laying a finger on him it's the, it's all detective work now does he try to punch through the glass of the interrogation room and beat the hell out of him sure does he no he doesn't have to. He did not lay one finger on him. And you tell me one other time in any Batman movie where the main villain is never touched by Batman at all and beaten up by him. Not a single time did that happen. And I didn't realize it at first. And then it hit me a couple days later. And I was like, wow, that is absolutely incredible. And, again, focuses on the fact that he's the world greatest detective along with a up-and-coming Jim Gordon and, and I gotta tell you I really really thought that Jeffrey Wright was an incredible Jim Gordon and the way that they kind of played off of each other and I love that you know when the GcPD thinks that they they're gonna arrest Batman they're gonna unmask him and then there, there's that moment where he like literally grabs him and he's like pushing Batman around the interrogation room and I'm like that's Jim Gordon right there that is the guy that's going to end up being commissioner. And this is the reason why. And then he helps him because he knows what's best for this city is for Batman to get out there and do what he needs to do. And he puts his reputation on the line because of his gut feeling. And that is Jim Gordon, quite frankly, that and we, and that is a side of Jim Gordon. We have seen in other movies too. This is not exclusive to this movie, but I really thought they did a great job in presenting that in this particular movie as well. And the Riddler was downright terrifying. Paul Dano did such a good job. And again, a Riddler that is masked almost the entire movie until towards the end. And we get that whole, the villain sees a vision of themselves in Batman and they think that they're they're fighting for the same thing. And that's obviously not the case. And then that also brings in the whole, does Batman create the villain's that he fights against. In this particular instance, I would say no because of the Riddler's manifesto and who he was going after and why. Now, was Bruce Wayne and Thomas Wayne on that list? Yeah, they were. Was that the main reason he was doing what he was doing? I argue no. So I think the Riddler was created more by Gotham City and the corruption in the city than by Batman Himself. So again, a very interesting angle that they go through with that, and we might not be done with the Riddler, are we? Maybe, maybe we aren't. The door is open there. The door is open for other villains as well. That we we saw the Joker there towards the end. And Matt Reeves says, don't expect that to be set up for the sequel because not necessarily. As a Matter of fact, the sequel seems to be what the Penguin series is going to be. And Colin Farrell, I you wouldn't if I did if you had not told me that was Colin Farrell, I wouldn't know the great transformation that they had in this movie. And I really, really loved. The one laugh out loud moment for me in this movie was when they've got Penguin tied up and you see him waddling like a penguin because they don't untie him and he's trying to get away. That was such a great, hilarious little Easter egg fan service moment that, I, that was totally on point and I did not see coming. So bravo to Matt Reeves and company for throwing that in there too. And and I don't want to just kind of throw to the side that Robert Pattinson did such a great job. You might say he was too brooding. Isn't that what he's supposed to be? This is a scarred Bruce Wayne. He's still feeling the scars early on of what's happened to him up and up to this point. And just being the Batman in the in the short term only and I love the narration throughout the movie. As well, I really, really thought that added to things, and that's something that kind of brings the crime noir aspect into the story is that we get that narration, and it, and it really further embeds you inside the mind of Bruce Wayne-slash-Batman, and it's not all the time. It's there when it needs to be there, kind of like Batman is. So there were so much—I just thought there were so many great choices that were made— in this movie and 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 i don't again i haven't even talked about zoe kravitz as selena kyle slash catwoman and maybe the most grounded down-to-earth just human version of selena kyle that we've gotten up to this point and again scarred there's so much damage there for her mentally and we get the and we get the story of again big spoiler of carmine falcone being her father they bring that in which is something we, again, correct me if I'm wrong, have not seen before up until this point. And what that does to her and how much she wants to just help the people that she loves the most. And when her friend goes missing and eventually ends up dead and what that does to her and what has happened to her life and up to this point and what's happened to her mother up to this point. It, that is just there's there's so much depth that is added there and it makes me want to see more of her it makes me want to see more of some of these other characters in this movie too and how they play off of each other and you see her drive away in another direction does that mean we won't see her again or maybe we will those are the questions that are created and make you want to think about a sequel instead of forcing a sequel because it's Batman so I think that there were so many great moments created in this movie top to bottom Maybe the best Batman live-action Batman movie ever. I'm going to say it. I know that's heavy-handed. I know that there's a lot of great things about a lot of other great Batman movies. But top to bottom, this might be the best one yet for me. I don't know how you feel. I know there's very strong feelings one way or the other. But this one, to me, was a huge, huge winner. I can't wait to watch it again. And I don't say that about a lot of movies. I can't wait to watch it again. And I can't wait to see where this story's going to go in the future. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Batman up next. We're going to a go spoiler-free when I talk about Disney and Pixar's Turning Red, which is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. My spoiler-free review next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
4: This is Taylor Hickson from Deadly Class, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: You better not get too excited because you never know what you're going to turn into. Disney's and Pixar's Turning Red is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Got a chance to see it a little bit early. I wanted to save my review, though, for today and give a spoiler-free review just in case you got, haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. But I have to say, this is really... There's a couple things going on here. First of all, there's a coming-of-age story, and that is very much centered around Mei Li, who is played by Rosalind Chiang. And, yeah, she's just... She's a 13-year-old girl. She's into very typical... Thirteen-year-old girl things. Although this is set in 2002, for some reason, I don't know why that is exactly. Other than you know they're into boy bands. Maybe boy bands were more popular back then. Although you could argue BTS right now. Maybe they're not. But I don't know. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But anyway, this is there's part of that. There's a coming-of-age story, and she's got her circle of friends that she hangs out with as well. And 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 it's a very cool, nice, tight-knit group of friends which is really, really neat to see, especially a group of of, of of young female friends, which is really, really neat. And then the other part of this is her family and especially her mom, Ming, who's played by Sandra Oh. And you want to talk about helicopter parenting. That She is the ultimate helicopter parent, Ming is for sure. But they do have a family secret. And we find out that Mei Li is one of the reasons for that is that you know she turns into a giant red panda when her emotions kind of get the best of her, sort of thing. So that is, and there's a whole ancient mystery that's involved in that, and you know bad things can happen and all this different stuff, and it's happened through generation through, for generation. And there, it, what's interesting is is that this movie really centers around Mei a lot, and I mean a lot and as well it should. She's the main character of the movie. But and there's a couple of things that they address in this movie that is kind of for an older crowd. I don't to. I don't want to say older than your typical Pixar movie. This is gonna to lean towards an older age group than your typical Pixar movie does. I'm not talking like adult. I'm talking about like the age range that May Lee's in and that's you know 13 years old. Although there's times to me where this movie still plays a little bit younger than that too. So it's kind of like, okay, you're, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too here a little bit, because first of all, you've got a, a very much younger skewing moments in this movie. And then you've also got something that I, I, there's some themes here that I think that can only be relatable to someone who's a little bit older. So that, that's kind of one of the things that, that bugged me about this movie a, a little bit. And also, the fact that I, there was one thing that was refreshing about it, which, which is kind of a spoiler, and I can't really reveal what it is. But in, in movies like this, typically, you know what? I'm going to reveal this spoiler because I can't talk about this movie otherwise. It just wouldn't make any sense. So one of the things is that, you know, certain people will find out the, se- the the main character's secret, the fact that she turns into a panda, right? Well, you know, like her mom knows, obviously. Her dad knows. Her friends know, they find out, and that's not really a shocker. But here's the thing. The interesting part about this is that she reveals this to basically everyone because everybody keeps finding out anyway. So she basically decides to to say, you know, yes, I'm a red panda. Here's who I am. And there's stuff that happens because of that reveal. That reveal actually sets off a couple of different catalysts in this movie, which I think is really, really interesting and i actually found that refreshing because it was like okay so we're not going to go with the trope of you know the thousand ways to try and talk your way out of this and make people you know not think they saw what they saw or to just kind of backtrack from it altogether they own it and it was very interesting and it causes some problems for the characters in this movie especially may lee so i thought that, that was a de- definitely really really cool way to go in this, and and this was a little different, but if I'm being honest, something was just missing for me from this movie. I'm not exactly sure what it was. I Obviously, I don't think I'm the target for this movie, okay? Definitely targeted towards young girls. That doesn't mean the boys can't enjoy this movie as well, but I think that young girls are definitely the target of this movie for sure, but I don't know. Some of the comedic moments didn't land as much as I would have liked. As far as Pixar movies usually go, I think the standard's set kind of high there. Uh, there is a heartfelt moment towards the end that I thought really, really did land and something between Maylee and her mom, which was really, really nice towards the end of the movie. I, I really, really did love that, and I don't want to spoil that. And you, we get to see, meet some of her other family. I do like the relationship between her and her dad. Her dad's a very level guy, and you know, kind of only I'm only going to speak up when I really want to sort of thing. And I really, really love that about her dad. But I don't know. There there was just something about this movie that just didn't work for me. And maybe it's because Pixar movies have been so good over the years. And I don't really feel like this one measures up to the level that they're in. And obviously there's something involved here that that I can't spoil that involves the Red Panda and what they do about it in tradition in the family. But yeah, I, I just think that something to me was missing here in this movie, and I'm not exactly sure what it was. But what is it fun? Yes, are kids going to enjoy this movie? Yes, I think, again, young girls will, will enjoy this a little bit more than boys will, but there are definitely some fun aspects of this movie. There's a great story about friendship here, and I, and I don't think that this is one that you should pass up. I just, I'm very curious to see how you feel about Disney's Turning Red which is now streaming on Disney plus. And yeah, I, I don't mind that this went right to Disney plus. It was, there were a lot of really cool visuals and a lot of bright color pops in this movie. So that visually it was really, really nice. And I think it you probably would have had a little bit more on the big screen, a little bit more of a pop, but I don't know that you missed much by not seeing this one on the big screen. That's going to do it for my spoiler free review of Disney and Pixar's Turning Red. Up next, we'll talk to Cherish Chen about Radiant Red as we stay in the Massiverse next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Hi, this is a rioter, Ryan Parrott, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: So, you know, things are already super massive at Image Comics. Well, guess what? Things are expanding in the Radiant Black universe at an an incredible rate. And one of the characters that I think you're really going to be happy about getting a a miniseries is Radiant Red. That book comes out the first issue anyway on March the 9th. And you'll remember this name from Radiant Black number six. It's Cherish Chen. Cherish, how you doing?
3: I'm good. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me on.
2: So it feels like this story's been a long time coming, Cherish. I mean, ever since, like I said, Radiant Black number six. So did this plan for the miniseries come about back then? And talk about working with Kyle and kind of crafting everything, getting things ready for the story.
3: So it's actually pretty interesting. It kind of like, it felt very fluid, actually, in terms of like how this all progressed. He asked me to come on to issue six of Radiant Black with him. And he had this kind of structure and plan for like, you know, the five, you know, there are these... Sixth issue arcs, but the sixth set of those arcs is going to be an origin story of one of the radians So we there were some things in place that Kyle had set up for Satomi. And it was really just like a very collaborative experience, kind of fleshing that out, just making some decisions based off of those foundational things. And then we wrote issue six very early on. Actually, it was like I think the December, it was before the the series had even started because I think it came out March and we were writing it in December and January around there. Oh, wow. From there, you know, it kind of came out and then we're like, is there more meat on this story bone? You know, like and so it kind of was like, well, there's I think there is more to tell, especially since Brady and Black, you know, Kyle really wants to focus on primarily Marshall and Nathan. So he, it kind of he was just like, you know, pitch me something for a miniseries. And I was like, OK, we've got some ideas. So we kind of just kept talking and fleshing it out and it just kind of grew into like, okay, like here's a five issue potential series we could do. And, you know, it's just very exciting that we're able to do it. Speaking of exciting, I mean, how excited were you to find out that you got David on the art
2: and company, everybody drawing this book and talk about what they bring to the story as well, because I mean, that, that's instant credibility right there as far as I'm concerned.
3: It is, I, you know, I say this a lot, probably, I've probably like tweeted a thousand times, but I'm like, it's a dream come true. Like, honestly, David is just, I mean, he's, you know, the, the term legendary gets thrown around, but David, you know, he's been around the block. Mm-hmm. He's done incredible, incredible work. He is just, it was surreal. Honestly, it was like, we would write, you know, the script for six and then you would get these pages back. And I was like, the storytelling here is on another level. You know, I really like the dialogue and everything we wrote, but David is, you know, when you get a really incredible sequential artist like David, the story just, you can follow it without any words. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like kind of what they say about, you know, film, you know, when really good staging and cinematography is there, like you can, a director tells the story without words. So I kind of have the similar experience. And then like bringing Mikkel on was just, next level i mean so it's people will probably hear me say this a thousand times but Mikel and david working together and kind of like i I don't know if they met on this but like i think this is the time they they first really puts their work together and it's just magical honestly it's it's so cool so i was just like you know as someone coming in i was like this is surreal seeing two people like a team so at the top of their game translating these you know these words we write into like amazing
2: art you know no doubt about that now there's actually still a lot we don't know about satomi heading into this first issue would you say her life outside of the suit is kind of just as complicated as radiant's red life is, radiant red's life is
3: yeah i would actually say one of the really cool things we've been able to do is kind of like intertwine the i i think being kind of the thing we're speculating is like being a superhero is so intermeshed. It's like you really can't separate the two. And so it's really interesting being able to explore that. You know, I think what's interesting about writing Satomi, you know, in Radiant Red is that I think Radiant Black and Marshall, like there's a very grounded, you know, he works at a, a movie rental place and like is it, there's a very grounded aspect to that. But with Satomi, she's robbing banks you know and yeah, so a little like, bit
2: different a little bit different than a nine to five <laughs>
3: yeah yeah so it's like it's been really interesting being like okay how do we still tell it from that same grounded place but like make it make sense and mm-hmm. have emotional truth to the whole thing you know so i, I would say like one her life as to me inherently feeds into her choices as radiant red and vice versa so that's and that's where the mess comes from <laughs>
2: so it's hard to
3: understand what to call
2: her. I mean, you, do you, do you think of her as a villain? Do you think of her as a as a up and coming hero sort of thing? I feel like there's an identity crisis thing going on, but also like for her in general. So would you agree that there is a bit of an identity crisis going on, and could that be one of the reasons that things are so difficult for her in the early going?
3: I think an identity crisis is the perfect way to put it. I think with this miniseries, it is her explicitly trying to figure out trying to make good or bad decisions and that is dictating who she's going to end up being so it's it's like is it superhero is it super villain is it somewhere in between but that's what kind of interests me it's like you know there's a lot of you know talk about like oh you know turning our favorite superheroes into like bad people right now whether that's interesting or not and I'm kind of interested in like well I don't think there's this explicitly good or bad I mean I think that it's a comp complication of both and what choices you make out of like being human I know that sounds like very like uh, but um, yeah (laughs) that's actually a really
2: good way to put it I mean that's who are you and you know maybe it's one of those things where you're on one path in one second and then you you know for lack of a better term you fall off the wagon and all of a sudden you know am i a villain again am i here and i, I that is one of the things that drew me to the book as well is that you're you're kind of you kind of don't know early on and i think that 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 is interesting
3: yeah it's like do you make bad choices out of a good place do you mm-hmm. make good choices out of a bad place oftentimes it's somewhere in between you know, it's like context you know it's like anything oh, yeah. You know, it's like so much of the conversations we have nowadays is is really stripped out of context, stripped of context. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to kind of like feed that back in and also tell it within, you know, like 22 pages every month, which is interesting. (laughs) And, And then there's also that. Talking to writer Cherish Chen of Radiant
2: Red, number one, which you can get in your local comic book shops on March the 9th. Now, Cherish, I feel like there's a couple different threats at play in the story here, especially in the early going. So which would you say is the bigger threat? What Satomi's hiding in her house or who we're about to see her meet in this first issue, of course, without spoiling anything?
3: I would say the new characters she's going to meet are going to present the bigger threat. It's all tied together. Like the people that she's going to meet are going to provide a potential out for i'll say that for the thing in her house the mm-hmm. stash of cash she's got but th- that's the in- impetus right that's the catalyst is these new people who are coming into her life so yeah. how she deals with that is you know kind of the conflict we're exploring for sure
2: ah yes the the, the plot thickens already and we're only in issue one i love that i love it so other, <laughs> other than satomi is there a character that's speaking of that is there a character you're really excited about for fans to meet or that you just really enjoyed writing because there are, there are some other good ones in there, I think.
3: Yes. Okay. So there, she meets a character in issue one. Well, she meets two characters and they do, they, they do all play their own roles, but there's one character, a man she meets in her classroom who is particularly fun to write i don't know how to describe besides it's like writing butter like it's just so it's just so fun that. so yeah that that character is going to be pretty prominent the other character that shows up is i i really love and she's like She's very much like an intellectual challenger to some of the things going on in Satomi's life. And then more characters show up in issue two. So I won't get too ahead of myself, but uh-huh. a character shows up in issue two that I'm very, very excited about. Kind of like a big bad, you know.
2: I'm so glad you started with that first one because that's exactly who I was thinking about when I wrote that question. So yeah, oh, I, I, I see. There we go. Yeah, yeah, right. okay. It's I'm already glad. it's already jiving. It's already <laughs> happening.
3: <laughs> that makes me happy. Like he's that it wasn't just popping off the page for me. It was, it, he's just he's so fun to write and, so. and the
2: and the art helped too because that it was re- that presentation i thought was really cool
3: as yeah well. yeah i just want to i do want to give a shout out that danielle designed that character so yeah just wanted to give a shout
2: one out one big happy that. family of course you know, that's oh, yeah just, that's just how things roll <laughs> speaking yeah. of which i mean the radiant radiant blacks gained i mean quite a following since since it started and for good reason so what's it been like seeing all of the support from those fans for this miniseries and does it really feel like the start of something bigger for everybody
3: it really does and i gotta say i think i'm in a unique situation because you know radiant black six was my first big comics credit and radiant red will be my first solo writing credit on in any comic so i feel like i'm getting a very special and uh, unusual introduction to the comics world which is very very cool the community is just something else it's very very cool to see how dedicated and how you know there's like we have this discord where you know some of the community members are just so diligent about like supporting each other and supporting the book and like talking about the theories which is really fun it's really special it really is and so it's it's surreal for me to kind of jump in on something and be like, you know, I talked to Kyle about like, I'm like, where all your books like launched? Like, you know, what is this experience? How is it unique for you? You know? And, you know, I think Kyle is like, yeah, it's it's really special. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you know, it's very cool to see it take off the way it has. And I think it's a testament to honestly, you know, Kyle and Marcello that they were so intentional with something that really connected with people. I think that's what makes Radiant Black and it's an extension, Radiant Red and pink and yellow, you know, like these mm-hmm. are very, very grounded characters. So, you know, it's it's very cool to be a part of. Well, you guys have already done
2: a great job on social media, teasing stuff and the art team as well. It's been fantastic. Make sure that, I mean, you probably didn't get a chance to pre-order it a little too late for that, but make sure you're getting your getting issue one of Radiant Red at your local comic book shops on march 9th digital retailers also available there as well also make sure you get more information at imagecomics.com. and this world is about to just blow up let me tell you and this one's going to be a big part of it it's Cherish chen writer of radiant red thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i appreciate it
3: thank you so much james this was a blast
2: and it feels like the massive versus really really start and roll that's why i wanted to jump on board and talk about these books and of course with ryan Parrott, Last week, this is a superhero story that's about to explode. If you're not reading Radiant Black, Radiant Red, Rogue Sun, and some of the other books that are coming out, you've got to start jumping on these things at your local comic book shops, or if you're buying digital comics, you're not going to want to miss out on this thing because it is about to be huge, and it's not too late to get caught up either. Again, thanks to Cherish Chen for joining me to talk about Radiant Red from Image Comics up next. We'll tackle the latest nerd news of the week. I'm James Withem, and this is. The Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, I'm Trey Romano from
1: DC's Stargirl, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Just when you thought we were done with movie delays, DC says, "Uh uh-uh, it's time for nerd news. And here's the frustrating thing, is that DC and Warner Brothers just released, not too long ago, this big sizzle reel of, this is the year of the DC movie, and they talked about all the movies that were going to be coming out. This year, and it was just—it was a huge muscle flex. And then, like a week later, you get this, and that is that there's a bunch of release date shuffling. The two big ones are the Flash and Aquaman two being shoved into 2023, and then you also have—well, Shazam's the only one that's actually getting moved up. Shazam's getting moved up. Everything else is getting moved back. Black Adam is going to be moving to October of this year. DC's League of the Super Pets is even being moved to, I think, May as well. So here's the deal. They they delayed some other movies as well, but I just want to talk about the DC stuff. And they say it was because of COVID-related delays. And okay, maybe, sure. But you didn't know that before you put that big flex trailer out where you're going, yeah, Here's all the movies we've got coming and oh there's Black Adam and there's Doctor Fate. Oh, we got Hawkman. We got Supergirl. All the oh Michael Keaton back as Batman and then guess what? A week later you would pull the rug out from under us. Now do am I the guy that always says let's take the time, let's do it right, don't rush things, there's no need to do that blah blah blah. Sure, I'm that guy. But I'm also not the guy That says, here's all the things that we've got coming this year. Oh, by the way, we've decided that after a week, they're not coming. You had to know that these delays were a thing. This is not something that just popped up in a week and it was huge. And you went, well, yeah, we are going to have to shut it down. We're going to have to move everybody. If you shift one, you got to shift a bunch. And the only reason you move Shazam up is probably because Shazam's closer to the end of their production. They've already wrapped filming. They're probably closer to the end. Of, well, I mean, The Flash is wrapped filming, too. But it, it so that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? If you've got these movies that wrap filming, what's the problem? I mean, maybe reshoots are going to be a thing for The Flash. Or maybe ADR is going to be a problem. But I, I don't know. It's just weird that you did that. And then not too, not too long after that, you say, okay, well, I guess we can't do that now. If, you, if they'd never put out that sizzle reel of all these movies and, and boasted about how they were coming this year, I would have zero beef at all, zero beef with what's happened, but they did. And now look at this and it just, and, and I think that DC is doing a very, very good job with their movies as of late, but there's so many fans that don't think they know what they're doing. And guess what? Something like this makes it look like you don't know what you're doing. And I really, really think they do. I think they've gotten it together. But when you do stuff like this, it's really, really got to make you scratch your head. So I don't know why they couldn't have just delayed this sizzle reel. I don't know why they couldn't have just figured it out, but it is what it is. We're going to get these movies eventually. That's going to be a really, really awesome thing. I just wish they hadn't have ended up with egg on their face because of this whole thing. Now, what we did get this week were a bunch of really... Really great trailers, and you know, I'm going to start with the Obi Wan Kenobi trailer, right? Going to be coming May 25th to Disney Plus, and yeah, basically exactly what we expected. And this is six years after the event of Revenge of the Sith. You see Obi Wan, and he is on Tatooine, watching over by the way, a young Luke Skywalker. So apparently, we're just going to get a bunch of Luke Skywalker now. We never thought we'd see him again. And now he's just popping up everywhere. Although this, this time it actually makes sense. We even see an Uncle Owen appearance or at least what looked like oh, Uncle Owen to me in the trailer ran anyway. But this, what was the gist of this is this is going to be basically the hunt for Obi-Wan Kenobi and him trying to stay hidden and why he wants to stay hidden and all of these things. So and of course, you know, Hayden Christensen back as Darth Vader. I love that they said they released a first look at him back as Darth Vader this week, it's a picture of Darth Vader. It's basically what it is. The Darth Vader that you've seen for decades, that's what it is. (laughs) So I think it's funny. It's like, okay, thanks. We knew Darth Vader was in it. Thanks for like, kind of confirming that even more. And thanks for confirming that. Guess what? He's going to look exactly the same. And there's nothing wrong with that either. By the way, I'm just saying that you made this big deal about this first look and it's really kind of not. Now, what we did get was a look at the Grand Inquisitor, who's kind of like leading the, the charge against trying to hunt and hunt down the Jedi. And, you know, Obi-Wan's not, I'm sure, the only one that they're looking for, but certainly the one that is of most interest to the Empire and to Darth Vader himself. But I think one of the other things that we're going to deal with it here is the aftermath of the fact that and you hear Obi-Wan say it in the trailer and you McGregor, McGregor says, it. he's like, you know, the war's over. We lost. And that's something you don't really think about at the end of Revenge of the Sith, right? Obviously, that's very true, but that's something that hasn't really been explored a ton, I don't think, in Star Wars lore. So, the aftermath of the fact that the immediate aftermath of losing, I get it six years later, maybe that's not immediate. It seems pretty immediate to me, and sh- certainly it's still fresh in Obi-Wan's mind. And I'm sure that we'll have some flashbacks and dealings with that as well about What happened like immediately after, right? And we'll get some of that too. I mean, the book of Boba Fett told us that we're going to get probably flashbacks in this one as well. But I think that's another thing that I really hope they deal with is the immediate aftermath as well. Obviously, there's going to be, you know, some pretty good action here, I would think, or at least some very good, you know, you know, chase type stuff of will they find him or won't they sort of thing, and hopefully an ultimate showdown between Obi Wan. And Darth Vader at some point, even if it's something small, I think I I hope we get that at some point. But I mean, how can you not be excited for this one? Quite frankly, which is going to be again May 25th on Disney Plus. Here's one that I had no idea was coming as quickly as it was, and that is DMZ, which is the DC Comics slash Vertigo adaptation on HBO Max of the Brian Wood comic. And it's coming on March the 17th. So we had like zero news on DMZ for the longest time. And then they're like, oh, by the way, here it is next week. So yeah, it's actually going to be coming next or this coming week. I should say, and of course, stars Rosario Dawson as Alma, who is going through war-torn New York, more specifically Manhattan. And all she wants to do is find her son. And you're in, again, DMZ, demilitarized zone. That's what DMZ stands for. So you're in this demilitarized zone. And, you know, all hell's breaking loose around you. You've got this crazy guy that's trying to rally up the troops that's played by Benjamin Brad. I believe his name is Parco or or something along those lines. And so is she kind of, as you could see, she's searching for her son and her focus starts to slowly shift. We see that, right? Even in this trailer, we see that shift. First of all, you don't mess with Rosario Dawson. I don't know how much longer we need to learn that. But yeah, you don't mess with Rosario Dawson at all. If she's playing a character in a movie, don't mess with her. because She's going to kick your ass, basically, is what what we're getting at. And then it looks like we're trending towards an ultimate showdown between between her and Benjamin Bratt in this movie. But you see kind of her start to take up the cause a little bit, right? And kind of rally the people who maybe feel like they've been held down or, in this case, walled in. And why? And why are they putting up with what's going on? in this war-torn area of New York. So there's a, a bunch of different things at play here. It looks like it's going to be pretty faithful to the comic, actually, just based on this trailer. It looks like we're going to get some pretty faithful adaptation here. I'm sure they'll take some liberties, too, but this limited series, and it is going to be a limited series, so this is this, this will likely be it, but it's going to be dropping on HBO Max on March the 17th, which is this coming Thursday. And quite frankly, I can't wait. This is one I've been waiting for for a while here's something a little funky that's coming to prime video i might have mentioned this before and it's outer range which is starring josh brolin and it's, it's in, you know a lot of other cast members involved in this as well but it's almost like a sci-fi version of yellowstone and and i say that which is coming out in april the 15th by the way that's when the first two episodes will come out anyway and it centers around the abbott family and they basically they're ranchers they're fighting for their land fighting for their family. There's this other family that's trying to take control of their land again, a la Yellowstone. And then there's this, this really weird, untimely death. And then there's also this supernatural mysterious thing that's happening at the edge of their farm where there's like this, this really, really black, there's like a black void or something like that. They've got trouble with the soil on their land. So something's going on. And you see that Royal Abbott, who's played by Josh Brolin, is, is a man of faith. He's just trying to figure out what the hell's going on with his town and his land and his family. And then you throw this mystery into the mix as, as well. And the fact that he's still looking for his daughter-in-law, who's disappeared too, that gets thrown into the mix. And what you just see in this trailer is a bunch of just really funky and intense stuff. And the trailer, to its credit, by the way, Does not give a ton away. And I really, really do love that that is not the case. They're not giving a whole bunch away. I don't want to know everything about this based on the trailer. So they do a really good job with that. I'm sure that we'll get another look at this thing before it comes out on April the 15th. This one really looks like it could have a lot of intrigue. Hopefully not too much. Hopefully it's not just too much mystery and too much unanswered questions. and doesn't go down the rabbit hole too much. But I think that this is one that you should definitely be keeping on your radar, out of range from Prime Video. Got a bit of a confirmation, speaking of HBO Max, that The Penguin, which is the working title of this series, by the way, is going to be coming to HBO Max, spun out of the Batman. Colin Farrell is going to be back to take the reins of this character once again. And it looks like this will be a sequel series, so it will deal with a bit of the aftermath of what we saw at the end of the Batman, and I know I did my spoiler-filled review just not too long ago, so you can just go back to that if you want to remember what happened. But I think that this is one that is, is going to be really, really neat because Colin Farrell did such a great job with the character. But taking in that immediate power vacuum, and that's not something that they're saving for the sequel of this movie, which I think is a very, very smart move. Jump into this power vacuum now while you can, while it's fresh in our minds, and let's see how this thing plays out. I think it's a really, really neat way to go about this. And what other characters are going to be involved in this? All we know is that this is coming. That's all we know right now. And what we don't know is who else is going to be a part of this thing. So exactly... How much is the Penguin going to be able to grab control? Who's going to be a kind of a foil to that? Will we see any heroes as a part of this? I doubt we see Batman as a part of this, so I wouldn't expect that. But in the GCPD, what's their involvement and post-corruption there as well? And are we still going to get the Gotham Central series? It looks like we may or may not. So that's another interesting thing that's going to be spinning out of this. But knowing that we're going to be getting the Penguin for sure, and I'm sure that title will change at some point. That's the headline. And I think I think that's a really, really good piece of news. Speaking of which, that's gonna do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guests, Andy Allo and Greg Daniels from Upload Season 2, now streaming on Prime Video. Also cherish Chen. Make sure you're picking up the first issue of Radiant Red and adding that to your poll box from Image Comics. Always go online to find us to at down and nerdypodcast.com. Also follow along on social media. At Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Don't forget to follow our new shows as well. That is at It's Comics Man. That's going to be the new comics podcast, and also at Mission Collect. That is going to be our show about collectibles. Really, really psyched about that. Don't forget, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.